Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We'll begin with this. A new Republican candidate is challenging Democratic incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock for that U.S. Senate seat. Kelvin King entered the race today and released a video. I'm a product of the American dream, which makes me the fiercest defender of freedom, opportunity, and American exceptionalism. And King says on the Facebook on his Facebook page that the Republican Party is at a crossroads. He's the first to announce a Republican run against Warnock, but likely won't be the last. Senator Warnock, meanwhile, won the election runoff, you recall, back in January and says he will run again for a full six year year term in 2020 in 2022. There is in other news. George Governor Brian Kemp is continuing to defend the state's new election law. Now, the governor spoke Saturday at a restaurant up in Cobb County. We continue to have secure, accessible, fair elections in Georgia, and Senate Bill 202 continues that and does nothing, nothing to change that. And that audio from local news station Fox 5. Meanwhile, in related news, as you just probably heard on NPR, actor Will Smith and production partner director Antoine Fuqua released a joint statement today citing they are pulling the production of a film starring Will Smith called Emancipation from Georgia because of the state's new election law. Stay tuned. There could be more. Now on to our daily COVID-19 numbers. Hospitalizations have remained steady in Georgia for the past three weeks. So right now, the total number of hospitalizations is at 59,714. And the state's overall COVID cases are also slow to drop. Another 738 new coronavirus cases were confirmed in Georgia just yesterday. Now, this brings the total number of confirmed cases since last March to 862,137 confirmed coronavirus cases. And 16,982 Georgians have died due to the virus. Also still, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Georgia still ranks at the bottom in the nation for its vaccination rate, with just about 28% of people having received at least one dose. And finally, history at this year's Masters in Augusta, Georgia. Hideki Matsumawa made history by becoming the first male golfer from Japan to win a PGA major. Now, Matsuyama first played the Augusta National as an amateur 10 years ago. How about that? Congratulations. Now, coming up in just a moment, a conversation on the pandemic's impact on alternative modes of transportation, mainly biking. We'll hear more from the Atlanta Bicycle Coalition and the organization's latest policy agenda. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at Richmond.edu. That's R I C H M O N T.edu. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. In the early days of the pandemic, remember that? Around this time last year, traffic in Atlanta and really nationwide subsided for a short time. 
Obviously, due to shelter-in-place orders, more people were staying off the roads. But as a result, more alternative forms of transportation took off. Last March, bicycle sales rose 50 percent compared to the year before. That's according to the market research firm, the NPD Group. The group also estimated 10 percent of those riders were hopping on the bike for the first time ever. I know I was on my bike. I only fell once. Still, with this surge in ridership, will it continue as more Americans are now vaccinated? What will become of our bike biking ways of living? Will that turn? Will it go back? We shall find out. Joining me now to discuss this is Rebecca Cerner. We also have some other information to talk about whether or not the people will keep biking. She's the executive director of the Atlanta Bicycle Coalition. And actually, Rebecca, when we spoke to you last, we were out on the Beltline at a distance, right? I saw you in real life. Yes. What was, wow. Can you did you What's think that, that like? even? Yeah. Wow. Yes. <laughs> what has that been like um, since that time? Uh, what do you just make of, of where we are now? I'm just curious. We've got vaccinations, people getting vaccinated. Uh, what do you make of all this? Yeah, I think there's a lot to be encouraged by and there's a lot still to be concerned about. Um, when it comes to transportation, as you mentioned, there was a lot less traffic on the roadways for a while. And so, so many people in neighborhoods across the city, you saw them out with their families biking if they had access to a bike and bike shops did really well. And we were really happy to see that support for local businesses. On the other hand, if you were trying to get places, if you had an essential job, it was really a double-edged sword because unfortunately less traffic means less um, to slow down the cars and more speeding. So people on Georgia's roadways died at higher numbers mm-hmm. in 2020 than in previous years. So really? um, the speeding is something that we're really concerned about. Yes. And we'll get to that in a moment, because from your perspective, also with the work of the Atlanta Bicycle Coalition, did you see a, a spike in interest or people wanting to partner with you all and say, hey, you know, now's the time because more folks are on their bikes. Let's try to push for more either campaign awareness or, or policies with the you know lawmakers coming back in session. What does your organization do during this time? Yeah, there's been a ton of interest in how people get around. And I think for those who had the luxury to do so, it was a time to really think about your transportation choices, what options are, are available to you. And for those who didn't have that luxury and had to keep going places and transporting themselves, of course, the cutbacks to transit service were a big hit. Um, so we're really glad to see MARTA restoring bus service up here in a couple of weeks. Um, but we had a lot of interest in partnering. We had um, really great participation in all of our free bike classes last year. Um, because we had to make those online, they were more accessible to people throughout Metro Atlanta. So that was that was good. And we've been able to expand our partnerships with school communities and providing access to bikes for families that want them. Um, and then on our policy agenda, we've seen a big uptake with organizations that want to support it. We have eight organizations so far that are signed on and looking for more partners as we advance those policies that we think will create a more equitable city through mobility. And there was a piece in the AJC that talked about you all are in talks with another organization, which I believe we've had on this program, um, PED, regarding a possible merger. What can you tell us? Yeah, we've been talking with PEDs at which stands for Pedestrians Educating Drivers on Safety. They've been around for 25 years. We've been around for 30 years. And at this point, we just see some potential efficiencies in our operations. You know, we end up being in a lot of the same meetings. Mm -hmm. We have a really closely shared perspective, shared values. Um, They work closely with us on our policy agenda each year. And so it just started to make sense that we would be stronger together. So we've entered into talks about a merger. And I can't report anything on the details, Mm -hmm. but those talks continue. And I will be sure to let you know as soon as we have something more tangible. For folks that are listening that may not be that familiar with the Atlanta Bicycle Coalition, they may think, oh, you all are just going to be advocates for, you know, obviously folks who are on bikes. But it's just a little bit more than just being an advocate and more than just, you know, putting out campaigns. Tell them what you all do. Yeah, and we're, we're more than bikes, too. We expanded our mission in 2019. Um, we've been focused on bikes for the last 28 years at that point. And looking around, we realized that a lot of the challenges people were facing were walking or waiting for the bus or not having access to good transit service. And so as part of that same desire to serve all Atlantans better with their transportation challenges, we decided to incorporate walking, biking, and transit that works for people. 
um, and adopted a new mission statement to reclaim Atlanta's streets as safe, inclusive, and thriving spaces for people to walk, ride, and roll. And And so, yeah. Go ahead, finish. Um, Just was going to add that, you know, we do things like bike education and other education programming. We do a lot of advocacy work and policy um, change is something we're very passionate about. But we also care a lot about bringing people together. And Atlanta Streets Alive is one of the most successful Mm -hmm. programs that we initiated about 10 years ago and are um, raring to bring back at some point. Yeah, we've actually uh, partnered with you all on a couple of those, and they have been fun. And Rebecca, I don't know if you remember, there was a question I always ask you and folks like you. I think you know it. What's that question I always ask you when it comes to Atlanta and folks on bikes? Do you know what that question is? Um, you really want to go for a bike ride with me and when can I pick you up? <laughs> I always ask you and others, is Atlanta a bike friendly city? I don't think any U.S. city is very bike friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, we clearly still have a long ways to go to, to gain, um, to be able to claim that term, but I don't think we're very friendly to any mode of getting around. Mm-hmm. I, I dislike using all of the transportation modes that I have access to pretty much equally <laughs> some days <laughs> for different reasons. Um, there's a lot of joy in getting around when you're powering yourself, whether it's on a bike or you're walking or running. My husband runs for transportation. Um, riding the bus, I love running into my neighbors on the bus and just being able to have a little chat with them on my way home. Um, but, you know, Atlanta streets and um, cities in the South in particular, they're really built around the car. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's a huge challenge that I think we're all still working to overcome. And that's always been in the core when we talk about, one, how do you even make a city bike friendly or, or for any mode of transportation? But you have to look at infrastructure and whether it's I'm having a conversation with Tim King from the mayor's office or someone else who says, well, you know, infrastructure the way Atlanta is, you just can't make it a bike friendly. So you have to do more than bike lanes. Um, there's also in terms of neighborhoods, the way neighborhoods were developed. And then we could go way back into even looking at what role segregation played into that. So infrastructure, okay. from an infrastructure standpoint, someone says Atlanta just can't be all, can't be everything to all modes of transportation. What do you respond? How do you respond to that? I think our top priority has to be to the safety of our residents and Atlantans trying to get around. So regardless of what mode they're using, um, we really have to make a decision. Are we going to prioritize safety or are we just going to accept the status quo? I don't accept the status quo. And I think a lot of us think that prioritizing safety is going to get us to the point where we are a friendlier city overall. We're a more equitable city overall. Um, we have big problems with social mobility in the city mm-hmm. and transportation has a role to play in giving people better access to opportunities, not standing in people's way, but being part of the solution. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Rebecca Cerner. She's the executive, executive director of the Atlanta Bicycle Coalition. And we're talking about the latest with Atlanta's what we call alternative transportation landscape. And also we're going to get, now get into your new list of policy recommendations for city leadership. Later this year, we'll have a pretty big election here. Uh, and I know you all try to stay out of endorsing candidates, right? Or do you? We're a 501c3, so we don't endorse <laughs> candidates. Um, but each year we put out a policy agenda mm-hmm. and, and policy change is something that I think we've gained some um, experience with. We were part of the coalition that helped the city adopt Vision Zero and a lower, safer default speed limit last year, um, just to give you one example. And so I'm really excited about the things we put in this agenda. It's very much a collaborative document. Mm-hmm. I've been working with a lot of our partners on it. Um, And I think you'll see a real strong shift towards um, equity in this agenda. Um, So not just the infrastructure that we were just talking about. That's really key. We we have to do better with infrastructure, y'all. We really have to. But building on top of that, we have to have policies that protect people as they're trying to use the infrastructure. Unsafe streets in marginalized communities lead to more interactions with the police. Mm -hmm. How can we create safer streets that actually avoid some of those interactions? How can we prevent speeding from happening in the first place? Um, and policy has a big role to play there. You had also talked about reducing traffic fatalities to zero. And I remember having this conversation with Tim King from the mayor's office, who believes that that is a possibility. But for someone listening, it says, well, Rebecca, then tell me then, can you, through your lens, how do you make trans, how do you come up with a plan that could rapidly reduce traffic fatalities to zero, a vision zero? 
Well, I would say, why would we accept any number higher than zero? Why would we accept that even one person goes out to the grocery store to get some milk and dies as a result? That's just not acceptable. So mm-hmm. we, all, we have to work towards zero traffic deaths. There are so many other things out there that are harder to solve than this. If we can get travel speeds down, it creates a more consistent travel time overall. Think about it. If you're behind a wreck, you're waiting for mm-hmm. potentially hours. And it makes it safer for everyone. So that that's really where I think the focus needs to be on building safe streets and policies that reduce speeding so that if there is a mistake that happens, people make mistakes, that that mistake isn't deadly. Is this then beyond a city of Atlanta issue? Do you also have to involve the Georgia General Assembly? Absolutely. And there's a couple of items in our policy agenda. Um, and we'll be talking about this throughout the year. It's pretty dense, but um, we'll be highlighting specific policies. But one of them does look at the state and what's their role to play when it comes to making sure that state roads have sidewalks. You know, we can't ever get to zero traffic deaths when we have state roads where people are driving at high speeds and there are folks next to them waiting for the bus without a sidewalk. I've had this conversation before with folks from the from GDOT and particularly looking at Donnelly Hollowell. And first I was told, you know, there was a debate over, well, is it the city responsibility or is it the state? And then finally, you know, I believe they there has I think a cross there is a crosswalk now been put over there, to your knowledge. There there is a crosswalk with uh, uh, the infrastructure for a signal. Uh, we've been told by residents that it hadn't been activated as of two weeks ago. Um, so we're hoping to hear that that's been activated soon. But really, a signal that tells drivers to stop on a high-speed four-lane road, it, that's not the level of safety that's going to really prevent all traffic. Deaths. And we've been having this conversation for years now. Um, how challenging is it when you have these conversations, or is it challenging when you talk about when it comes to policy within the city, if, if it's something is reducing the speed limit, uh, but also, you know, you look at, I think every year, every other year, they come out with the four most dangerous intersections in all of Georgia, and they're all in Atlanta. You know, they're always they're always in the city of Atlanta. What has that conversation been like in terms of getting the speed reduced in some of these streets? Yeah, the city of Atlanta is starting work on a Vision Zero action plan. Um, so this is going to be a pretty targeted document. You know, what are the specific things that we need to change as quickly as possible um, that are going to save the most lives? And then looking at the state level, those conversations they've gotten a lot better since I started doing this work. Um, There are people at the state department of transportation who do care about safety and, you know, the proof is in the pudding, as they say, Um, we're part of um, stakeholder groups that are reviewing projects on streets like metropolitan, where it intersects with Ralph David Abernathy, Mm -hmm. which if you've been through that, you just wish you could teleport away and Mm -hmm. get through it some other way, because there's no good way to get across it. Um, So they're looking at a pretty big safety overhaul at that intersection. Um, And I think as long as we continue to keep the um, people who are the most at risk, you know, people in wheelchairs, people walking, parents with their kids, people riding bikes or scooters in mind first, then we're going to create the best possible outcomes for everyone. When we have talked about this region's overall transportation landscape, which obviously includes the Beltline, obviously includes public transportation, how do you all see MARTA being a part of some of the solutions? And are are you addressing public transportation in your new policies, your agenda for, with your new policies? Yeah, we are. Um, our categories, we have safety is number one. Then second is transit and affordability. So we're looking at the ways that, you know, transit is naturally more affordable than owning a car. But what are the ways that that can contribute to Um, reducing the housing burden on families um, and and creating more housing that's affordable and is located near transit. That's really the the secret sauce right there. Um, And so that's a big part of our agenda that we're looking at. And I think MARTA has a huge role to play. We'd like to see them, for example, look at their fare structure. How can that be um, made fairer for people? No pun intended. I want to get your view on this because we've talked about the Beltline and just had a conversation uh, with their president and CEO, and in talking about light rail being a part of the Beltline, your viewpoint on that, and that's a important part of the, the Beltline. Is it through your lens? 
Transit is important on the Beltline. We don't get into the um, technology level of things. What we're really about is connecting people with opportunities to be advocates. And so I think there's been a lot of really strong advocacy around the Beltline. Um, for us, the thing that has to come first and foremost is what is the effect on people who have been marginalized, who've mm -hmm. been left out in Atlanta historically? Um, how's it going to affect them? And the people closest to the problem should be closest to the solution. So I, I'd like to get clearer answers on um, how that type of prioritization of transit on the Beltline would affect other projects like transit on Campbellton Road, mm -hmm. where you have a lot of density, a lot of apartments, uh, and people who really rely on transit to get around. And Rebecca, I talked to so many leaders in this area, and everyone, not not dismissing, you know, just how sincere they are, but everyone likes to use that word equity. You talked about it earlier, and everyone wants to talk about this is important because this is Atlanta, and we're a city that involved <laughs> that looks to, you know, be this 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 beacon for equity. And then when it comes to equity in transportation, do are folks? Do you think folks, the leaders, you don't have to obviously mention names here, but folks really get it or is it just a, a a a popular buzz terminology to use when we talk about all this and do you see it happening in this region when we talk about equity and i don't know what equity looks like through your lens maybe you should start there yeah our staff spent um a fair amount of time talking about this and just figuring out you know each of us brings our own perspectives to the work and we wrote up a definition of what equity means to us and also what racial equity means to us um and I'm happy to share those with you. And just to summarize, the thing I think is really important is equity is putting into practice through policies and allocation of resources, the principles that will really intentionally dismantle these power structures mm -hmm. and the other disparities. So I think that's really important. It's resource allocation. And so in transportation, it's so clear to see how inequity plays out. If you look at where the highways were placed, it's just one example. Well, they were placed in the middle of Atlanta's black communities, mm -hmm. and they're still there today. And all of the problems that they created then still exist today. And so until we do something about that, then we can throw out equity all we want. But I care about real solutions to the problems, not buzzwords. And, and I think you're onto something there. You can tell who's really got a lived understanding of the, the word and who's just throwing it out. And you can tell when my email um, <laughs> notifications start popping up because you hit a nerve, Rebecca. Oh, maybe I did. Uh, actually, I want to go to Twitter for a moment because Steve says, Rose, can you talk about bike lane maintenance? I guess Steve wants to talk about that. Uh, are the bike lanes not being properly maintained? Don't know what Maintenance Steve's is a constant, especially in, a, in a, the South. You know, we get a lot of rain. We've got a lot of heat. We've got a lot of cold. Um, and that's something in our policy agenda. We think that there's a possible win-win here. We want the city to create a workforce development pr program that will provide green jobs and train people to be city workers, get a fair wage, and do things like repair sidewalks, repair bike lanes, maintain things. I don't know if you can hear it, but there's actually a jackhammer outside my house right now. <laughs> They're installing ADA accessible ramps to the sidewalk, so a little noisy, but for a great cause. But maintenance is, is really key. Um, and as a city, we haven't maintained our infrastructure in so many ways. And, you know, we've paid the price from sewers to potholes on our streets. So it does require investment. Um, and that's why the third category in our agenda is all about funding. Mm -hmm. we'll get, I want to get to funding in a moment. And you mentioned potholes, so I'm sure I'll get some emails about that, too. But your plan also has a number of poly, policy recommendations for APS. And it includes measures such as adding transportation education to the curriculum and creating a safe, what you call a safe route travel plan to school. Have you all worked with APS on provisions like this before? We have been partnering um, with individual school communities. We have had a program called Shifting Gears where we do things like provide bike education for second graders during their PE class. Um, and then Bike Family, we've provided bikes to families as well as education. Um, and. There's a school in Southwest Atlanta off, off Cascade, Tuskegee Airmen Global Academy or mm -hmm. TAG, and they've really been leaders in this space. They're modeling all these really cool um, ideas for curriculum development where you incorporate transportation education about whether it's the environment into your science class or advocacy into your social sciences class. Um, and these kids have great ideas. 
So I think there's a, a lot of um, great potential for solutions to emerge from programs like that. And this is something that's really nonpartisan and any candidate can um, wrap their arms around mm. and say, you know, I care about the safety of kids getting to and from school. And we should note WABE's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Public Schools. Now, all of this, of course, as you mentioned, takes funding. Your plan, you asked the city of Atlanta to consider extending T-SPLOS. Um, why do you I, it seems silly to ask you why you believe it's necessary. I, I think a better question might be, how optimistic are you that that will actually happen? Well, I do think it's necessary. And I mentioned earlier, we have to get better at building transportation and infrastructure in this city. We've got a lot of um, barriers in the way um, that have really prevented us from adding the, the miles and the sidewalks, the bike lanes, the um, resurfacing of streets that are so desperately needed throughout the city, as well as newer project types like dedicated bus lanes that have a lot of potential to help mm -hmm. us get out of traffic. Um, but the funding piece of it, we won't solve any of those barriers, which are mostly about the bureaucratic side of things by depriving the city of funding that it needs. Um, and it needs that funding also to access federal transportation dollars. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you're required to have a local match to get access to those federal dollars, which seem to be potentially freeing up at the national level. So we would not want to cut off um, Atlantis of today or of tomorrow from that opportunity. Rebecca, as we wrap up, we started this conversation. I asked you to reflect on the last year with the pandemic, but now I ask you, what lessons do you think can be learned as it relates to transportation, overall transportation for a city like Atlanta, and what lessons can be learned because of the pandemic? I think what we learned during the pandemic is that transportation really is essential. It's a huge part of what makes a city work or not work. It's a part of everyone's life. And we're ready for transportation to make its way onto that top tier of issues that uh, our elected officials care about and talk about um, from that lived perspective. You know, it can be something that prevents us from accessing opportunities when it's bad, or it can be something that's even enjoyable when it's good. It can free us up to, to focus on other things. And even during the pandemic, when people, um, some people were not traveling as much, um, that just exposed the greater risks that people who were still traveling faced. Rebecca Cerna is executive director of the Atlanta Bicycle Coalition. We've been talking about their latest policy agenda. Rebecca, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for what you're all doing, trying to keep people safe, too. That's very important. Thank you so much for having me. I'll see you in the belt line, maybe. That's good. I need a new bike, Rebecca. you got to help me pick out a new bike because my bike's pretty old. i got a whole shed full. Come on, Rose. Do you really? <laughs> Everybody <laughs> head to Rebecca's place for <laughs> pick up a new bike. <laughs> Thank yeah, you so much. one extra. <laughs> Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Before our next segment begins, we're going to open up the Closer Look archives. When this program debuted back in 2015, one of the very first segments was a three-part series about the Peachtree and Pine Homeless Shelter. And it's where I met Anthony, who was in charge of the rooftop garden. What's your story? Where are you from? How'd you end up here? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, it's a long story, so I'm not going to go into that, but, but okay? yeah, I'm doing okay, you know. I sat back, you know, I'm trying to get a, a fresh new start. I'm not trying to get back out there and, you know, sell drugs. I'm, I'm 40 years old. I turn 41 next month and everything. You know, I'm a licensed barber, and this is what I love doing. Besides, cause, you know, taking care of guards, making sure everything be on point, and, you know, and I went to school for it, and now I'm a certified. That's something I love doing right here. What has this shelter meant for you in trying to turn your life around? It's going to help you out a lot, you know. Calm down a lot and everything. And it's basically helping me get my life back together. 
and everything. You know, I got my GED, my high school diploma, and when I turned around and went and got my get certified through agriculture and everything, that that could do nothing but put a smile on my face. And I just I just love doing it. How did you connect with the shelter? Did somebody bring you here? Did you just know about it? How did you connect with the shelter? Well, I was told about it by a friend. I was down there at the, uh, Atlanta Union Mission and everything, and their shelter is okay, but it's nothing like this. Down there, it's just all about get in, get out. Down here, you can take time and, you know, go to a counselor, talk to them. They try their best of their ability to help you out and everything. That was Anthony, who we met back in 2015, talking about the Peachtree and Pine Shelter. And on any given night, it was estimated up to 400 men would come to the shelter. And two years later, after our visit, it closed. And the Peachtree and Pine Shelter had supporters and detractors. After reaching a settlement, the city sold the building to Emory University. It's not clear what will become of the building. It's also not clear just how many people are homeless in the Atlanta area. The numbers seem to change. For a little history lesson, during Atlanta Mayor Andy Young's administration, the city funded winter and freezing weather shelters. Under Mayor Shirley Franklin, a task force was developed along with public and private partnerships. With multiple service providers, they began raising money. Now, there is not one size that fits all when it comes to best practices and approaches to homelessness. Right now, we're going to learn more about a model or a movement, as it's called. It's the Built for Zero Community Solutions. And... It just received a $100 million grant from the MacArthur Foundation's 100 and Change competition. Join me now to talk more about the Built for Zero movement is Jake McGuire, principal at Community Solutions, where he co-directs the Built for Zero team. Welcome to the program, Jake. Good to meet you. Thanks, Rose. It's really good to be here. Let's begin here because earlier this year in a blog on the organization's website, you authored a piece under the title, Can a Large City End Homelessness? And you begin to answer it with this. I want to quote you here. Homelessness is solvable. In Built for Zero, 14 communities have proven it, reaching a dynamic milestone for ending homelessness for a population known as Functional Zero. And someone, I encourage people to go on your website and read that. Someone listening says, really, a large city can end homelessness? If you can, take that a little further for them. Yeah, it's, uh, I would say it's the first question we get anytime we get out there and say, Homelessness is not intractable. We can we can solve it together. People say, well, could you really do it in a big urban ecosystem like Atlanta or, you know, people like to talk about Los Angeles mm-hmm. or Detroit. Um, we really think that you can. Uh, large cities start with some disadvantages. Uh, they often have extremely complex politics, as your listeners will know. Uh, they usually have higher cost housing markets. And they usually have more people, so they're starting at, at sort of a deficit. Um, but we're working with a cohort of large cities around the country, and um, you know, five of them have driven reductions now for their target populations of 20% or more, and they're continuing on all the way to zero. So we really think it's possible, um, but it starts with believing it's possible, and then you know, people can kind of ask, okay, what would we have to do different if that's really true? Well, from that mindset, but you also mentioned a, a targeted community, and you all have been focusing on veterans, correct? Yeah, the communities that we support, um, you know, Built for Zero is a movement nationally of about 84 communities right now that come together and say, we want to really end all homelessness, but we're going to, to learn, we're going to start with some focused populations. And those are uh, those tend to be veterans or uh, what we call folks experiencing chronic homelessness, which is really long-term homelessness among really some of the sickest people on our streets, um, folks with significant medical vulnerabilities. Communities can choose which one of those populations they start with. But the exciting thing is when a community gets to zero in that population, uh, we then immediately start working with them to scale out those results to all the other folks living on their streets or in their shelters. And we have a number of communities now that are on track to get to zero homelessness for everybody, which is the real goal. For our listeners here in the Atlanta area, can you share one of those communities in one of the cities? Yeah, well, a really exciting one uh, that just got to an end to chronic homelessness is Bakersfield, California. So this is Bakersfield and then all of Kern County. Um, It's notable, I think, because we're talking about Southern California. You know, people think of homelessness, sometimes they think of the West Coast. We see real affordable housing crises out there. Um, I think it's also notable because it's a huge community. It's the whole county. Uh, It took them a long, long time, but they were able over time to drive chronic homelessness down from you know, upwards of, I think, about 400 folks uh, all the way down to zero 
by working with us and, and some of the partners in that community. The Built for Zero solution, how did this come about? Who who were the principals, the architects of this this mm. model here, or this movement, as you all call it? It's a great question. I mean, our our work, sometimes when people ask me, you know, what do you do? How have you kind of learned your way into what you do? I will tell what, what can sound like a story about our failures over many, many years. Mm-hmm. But I think the interesting thing about our work is we have kind of moved from one kind of insight to another, in some ways kind of failing our way forward to figure out what works. We started really in the, the 90s, our organization worked in New York City. And the kind of theory of change at that time, if you will, was, hey, homelessness is an affordable housing problem. If we build lots of affordable housing, eventually we'll start to see homelessness go down or, or go away. We became at that time the largest provider of what's called supportive housing. So affordable housing connected to social services uh, in the whole country, uh, over 3000 units of this kind of housing throughout New York. And for people who got into our housing, uh, they were having really, really good outcomes. You know, you'd see people stay in housing, they'd kind of start to rebuild their lives, they you know, developed a new sense of agency. But across the city in New York, you know, homelessness wasn't going down, it was actually going up. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I think we had to kind of wrestle with the idea that you know, what if housing is important, but we can't actually just build our way out of this problem. And that's when we really started asking people experiencing homelessness, you know, what would it really take? What what are your what are you seeing as the reason that you're still out here? And what we found was it was actually the huge labyrinth of systems that govern who gets access to housing that people have to navigate in all mm-hmm. these different ways that were really, really difficult to make it through. And at some point, I think we just realized as an organization, we're going to have to pivot and figure out how to kind of unfurl those systems if we actually really wanted to develop a solution to this problem. And also a a major part of it, Jake, as you know, and your organization knows, as someone said to me recently, look, homelessness is a condition that often masks many more challenges. It's not just Mm -hmm. about taking someone and providing shelter. There are so many other, Mm -hmm. as we call them, wraparound services that an individual or even a family may need. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm sure with yeah, your veterans, right. you all experience that. Yeah, I mean, what we tend to see is, um, you know, the the difference, you know, rose between someone like, like you or me, who if we had a hard time, uh, I would hope maybe wouldn't become homeless. And, and someone who does is, is usually that they're experiencing, you know, something else in line with that tough time in their life that makes it more difficult for them to stay on their feet. Sometimes that might be about the quality of, of someone's social networks, right? How much support do you have from your own community, your family? A lot of times we talk about folks who fall into homelessness as maybe just someone who's kind of burned their last bridge. You know, the, the last couch that they could have slept on is, is gone. Um, but a lot of times it's also about really complicating factors, uh, mental illness, uh, maybe challenges with substance abuse. I think a reason um, communities struggle to solve homelessness sometimes is that we we often find people are trying to solve all those different issues kind of one at a time in a sort of a piecemeal way mm-hmm. instead of saying, you know, what would the end end state here really look like for somebody? So instead of just, hey, you can get some drug treatment over here and you can talk to a therapist over there, it's how do we actually bring all those different things together in a process that actually leads as quickly as possible to somebody being back in permanent housing? And that's really what we want this whole system to be designed to do. But there's also, would you admit, there's also another optic here, which is when we talk about what is affordable housing or or housing affordability, because for some folks, it's just an issue of we cannot, it's hard to find affordable housing or, or even renting because, you know, with all the other criteria that's related you got to have this type of credit score you have to have Mm -hmm. first months last months pet deposit everything else deposit i mean sometimes it's just the 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 criteria around just trying to find affordable housing and so it may not be any other issues like mental health or, or or what have you it's just folks trying to find a place to live that they can afford so when you're in those communities, like you, you mentioned the community out there in California, but how, how Bakersfield relates to Atlanta, I don't know what Bakersfield's housing affordability issue is out there. I know here in Atlanta, mm-hmm. it is off the chain, as what we say. It, it's, it's hard to find an affordable mm-hmm. place to live. So how do you all navigate through that? Because if you're 
looking to buy, you know, buildings or purchase, you know, land, you're up against the market and you're up against developers and you're up against people who can come in and plop down a whole bunch of cash and grab something right away. Yeah, it's a really important question. I mean, when people are homeless, uh, always, you know, part of that problem is that they have lost the ability to afford housing. And sometimes that is structural. I think we see two things. Um, One, most communities that we start working with assume that the reason we can't end homelessness is because housing is just too expensive in this community. Until we solve that problem, there's nothing we can do. And sometimes that can lead to a kind of paralysis. Mm -hmm. Um, When we start to dig deeper with communities and help them improve the quality of their data so they can get a better look into what's really going on with homelessness, um, improve the level of coordination among all those different players touching homelessness, Sometimes we get it, start to get a slightly different picture of what's going on in that community. There may still be housing affordability issues, uh, but oftentimes there's an awful lot you can do by coordinating the resources that you already have. And what that can do is give you a better sense of, okay, yes, more affordable housing, but how much? Is the problem maybe a little more definable than we were previously talking about it? What would it take to really close that gap? And that's what Built for Zero is really about. Mm -hmm. It's about helping communities get a better sense of what are the really specific problems. You know, let's start stop talking in generalities and get as specific as we can about what would need to change in this community, not somebody else's community, Mm -hmm. to close the gaps and get everybody into into permanent housing. And then at that point, you know, if you have an affordable housing crisis, you can say, great, what are the federal funds available? What's the private capital available? How would we start to build a solution? But you might find you have other kind of problems as well, and you can get to work as a team solving those. Absolutely. And you all, Community Solutions recently just purchased, a, I believe, an apartment uh, apartment building for some veterans here in, in the Atlanta area. And now with this 100, and congratulations on the $100 million <laughs> grant. Um, but that's going to be split among, correct me if I'm Thank wrong, you. 75 communities. Is that correct? Yeah, the goal is to really use that um just you know incredible and humbling amount of money um to try to to supercharge the work that the communities we support are doing um so you know we are imagining right now that you know probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 percent of that money will be passed through directly to communities and partners uh to support staffing and new housing investments in those communities um and another really important part of that money is to use that money to sort of build on the work we're already doing to improve communities data uh, their ability to use data to make better sense of the problems that they're facing uh, and start to drive reductions as a team. So there's a lot that that money is going to go to support over the next five years. Mm-hmm. But increasing community capacity and helping communities build more housing is definitely a piece of that. If you just join us, I'm joined by Jake McGuire. He's a principal at Community Solutions, where he co-directs the Built for Zero team. And we're talking about a $100 million grant from the MacArthur Foundation's 100 and Change competition and as part of the Built for Zero Community Solutions. Well, Jake, someone listening says, you just said 40%. So the does the other 60% have to go to operating costs? That seems a little imbalance. Or- <laughs> no, it's... It doesn't go to operating costs. It's, some of that will go to fund the kind of coaching and deep support that we look to provide uh, to communities. You know, communities usually start in this work. Um, well, first of all, to even say community is kind of a, a challenging concept. What mm-hmm. do we mean? You know, yeah. A lot of times what we see in communities, there may be, you know, 50, 100, 200 different agencies or organizations that touch homelessness in some way in that community. And the question is, is all that worthy work adding up? to mm-hmm. fewer people experiencing homelessness over time. And so the first thing that a community, when they join Built for Zero, does is say, how do we actually start to act as one community? How do we get all those folks to the table? And so we provide some really dedicated coaching to sort of broker those kinds of agreements, and get everybody to one table and to a place where they say, all right, we'd be willing to work together on this problem. Uh, if you can do that, y- your next challenge is everybody's got their own data and their own sense of what's true, and it's very, very hard to agree on what's going on. And so we try to figure out how would we bring all of your data on this problem into one place so that month over month, we can say how many people are out there experiencing homelessness? Who are they? Do we all agree that that's the ground truth that we have to start working on? Um, There's a lot of our work that's focused on helping communities integrate that data, build better technical solutions that would Mm -hmm. allow them to work with that data in a user-friendly way. Um, And then from there, it's the business of driving reductions. So what are all the different things we're trying? And month over month, 
is the number of people experiencing homelessness in this community going down? And if not, you know, it doesn't matter how, how good your program is or how good my reputation is or whatever. We should be interested in trying something different. And how would we use that data to figure out what that kind of thing might be? Well, what have you all learned with these models within these communities that maybe didn't work and you you learned from that or you had to go to this community and say, you know what, this isn't working, so now mm. let's try a different approach? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. One of the really common things I think that we see uh, when we start supporting a community is um, that there are lots and lots of really good programs mm-hmm. that have been operating in that community for a long time. Um, unfortunately, those programs might not be um, seeing themselves as working toward a community-wide result. So it's really easy in this work. It's really, really hard work. You know, it's it's um, sometimes unrewarding work to kind of get your head down and just be focused on whoever shows up at my door. I'm just trying with everything I can to sort of stand in the gap for them. Um, when you ask a program to shift toward, is the work my program is doing, making the highest and best contribution to less homelessness across this whole community, programs may have to open themselves up to some really different questions. You know, w- mm-hmm. one way to get really good program outcomes, for example, right, to keep getting your, your funding coming in the door or whatever, um, is to be really choosy about who your program might be willing to support. You know, hey, folks that we don't have a good track record of helping because maybe their needs are too complex or they're really vulnerable. A lot of times programs will kind of screen those folks out, say maybe somebody else would be better suited to help those folks. But, you know, to make our grant outcomes work, we need to be working with people who are a little easier to help. Well, that may make sense for your program, but at the community level, what that means is if everybody's doing that, some of your most vulnerable folks are going to be falling through the cracks on a regular basis. To be clear, folks are going to be shut out of the process of the resources. That's right. And we see that a lot. So when you are talking to folks in communities, what do you say to them? You know, they say, well, you know, Jake, we want to focus on maybe LGBTQ teens, youth, or we Mm -hmm. maybe want to focus on veterans or maybe we would just want to focus on you know women with children you know how do you get and I guess it does depend on the community because maybe in the community there may be one or two more populations that require more of the resources but you're also trying to challenge people to say look don't just focus on what may be easier for you veterans may be easier in your community but maybe you don't have a high percentage of of veterans who are homeless maybe Mm -hmm. it is LGBTQ youth so what yeah. kind of responses do you get from the communities? Yeah, it, you've really hit on it. I mean, the number one places we see this are um, the, the folks that are likely to fall through the cracks of the system that we have, you know, been operating with as a country. Um, LGBTQ, LGBTQ folks, um, people of color, and actually especially black and native folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then folks with disabilities, people who are really, really sick and, and basically unable to sort of navigate these very complex systems. I think the really important move <laughs> that communities have to make when they join Built for Zero is that it sounds very technical, but bringing all that data together in one place. When you can look at a single agreed upon picture of homelessness in your community, instead of the data that I have in my program about my clients being my kind of whole universe, right? When you can look at the whole thing, you may start to realize that, you know, wow, Rose's program is getting great outcomes and my program is getting great outcomes. But actually, look at all the black folks that are routinely falling through the cracks mm-hmm. of this system we built because neither of us is choosing to focus on that population. We're never going to get to an end to homelessness in this community if we don't agree to do something different between our two programs and figure out how, how uniquely you'd have to operate to serve that population. So the idea is to take this thing that can feel very fragmented and very, very hard to see and make sense of because we're all just holding our little piece of it and build one shared picture that allows us to have a conversation about what's really going on across the, the whole community. And then, you know, can we, if we've kind of started from this place of shared accountability, can we agree that we might have to be open to changing what we're doing if we want to get a different outcome as a community? When it comes to bringing all of these community stakeholders involved everyone who mm-hmm. wants to be a part of the process the holistic team do y'all do y'all record these conversations <laughs> <'Cause> I'd love, <laughs> to, <laughs> I'd love we, to be in there just taking notes <laughs> i mean these can be really interesting conversations I, yeah i mean 
a big part of our our work, you know, a huge investment we've made in our team is in um, deep, deep training on some core problem-solving competencies. You know, facilitation is one of those. How do you facilitate really thorny conversations uh, to get people to a place where they can start to take action together? And you're right, those conversations are, sometimes they're really intense, mm -hmm. which find out when you start doing this work is there's really almost nobody in this work that didn't get into it for a reason other than to really make a difference in the lives of vulnerable people. But people have been really beaten down by these systems, they have, by Jake. compliance, yeah. funding requirements, all these different things. And you, you have to try to figure out how to wake people back up to what's possible if they start working together. And that's not always an easy task, but sometimes you can kind of see that light bulb go off for people. Built for Zero is really about, I think, bringing that energy back to that idea of collective problem solving. All right. We want to stay on top of this. It's the Built for Zero movement. Jake McGuire is a principal at Community Solutions, where he co-directs the Built for Zero team. Jake, congratulations again on the $100 million grant from the MacArthur Foundation's 100 and Change competition. I want to check back in with you all. Of course, you're doing some work here in the Atlanta area, but we want to stay on top of this. Thank you so much for what you're all trying to do to end homelessness in this nation. Thank you, Rose. Appreciate it. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights now at 7 p.m. And of course, we have a podcast like everybody else. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.